Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. From a judicial standpoint, it's just ridiculous for you to suggest that you have a business to provide a service and people who can come want to come into your, into your business to procure that service. You just tell them they can't come in and you fill in the blank with an artificial classification. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I actually feel really terrible today because I had this like this sudden moment after being on the phone for probably three hours this morning doing different work things. I realized I, I, a lot of people are like this. I cannot um, sit still when I'm on the phone. So mm-hmm. I'm just always like pacing or whatever. And as you know, I live in a condo building and right. I just all of a sudden was like, how many days have I been doing this all day? And my thinking about my poor neighbor downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> um, other than that, I'm doing good, but it was, I, I had never realized how much I was doing it. If you, if you haven't heard the beating on your floor, then uh, I, I think know. you're okay. I don't think I have, but maybe it's just been drowned out by my pacing. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I do want to go ahead and congratulate you, you and the uh, trial team uh, who tried the uh, Simmons case along with uh, our law partner, Jeff Harris, and um, uh, uh, Andrew Bowen, Paul Painter, and, and Owen Murphy, uh, because that case, uh, which was a great trial verdict, uh, you just got upheld by the Supreme Court of Georgia. So congratulations. Thank you. Two year, two over two years of yeah. appeals. So I'm very excited for it to um, almost be over. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations. Well, um, Yvonne, let's welcome on to, uh, on to the show our guest uh, today. We have a repeat guest, so he, uh, he, he must like it well enough to come back for a second show. Uh, but we have today Derek Alexander Pope. Derek was uh, a guest earlier this year uh, when we uh, talked about the um, uh, Holmes versus Danner case, which was a uh, historic case that uh, desegregated the University of Georgia. Uh, and uh, and Derek is the uh, president and uh, executive director of the Arc of Justice Institute uh, and uh, in charge of the Arc of Justice Project. And he also has a fantastic podcast called the Hidden Legal Figures Podcast. Derek, how are you doing? Very, very well, Steve. Thank you. How are you today? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good. Making it through this, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, weird time that we're in right now. Very much so. I think we're all doing that. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and I, I wanted to say, uh, you know, before we got started, Derek, I think you recruited Yvonne into uh, into doing a little bit of work on your podcast, on the Hidden Legal Figures podcast. That is absolutely correct. We're getting ready to start putting the. Uh, structure to what season two is. We just finished our inaugural season with our last episode back uh, last Tuesday, and we're going to need some capable voice thespians to <laughs> recreate the parts of lawyers from the late, mid to late nineteenth uh, and my nineteenth century and early twentieth century, and. Yvonne has graciously volunteered to be <laughs> one of our leading actresses so that's right yeah can't, can't, we're looking forward to it we're looking forward to it I, I'm, I'm predicting um emmys oscars yes based, this is solely based because Yvonne's present that's what i'm this, I, that's what i've seen this is a, a breakout I, I can feel it coming 
Derek, I'm very excited. And I just want to throw out there that if there's any teenage boy roles, I think that's also (laughs) in my vocal range. So (laughs) just keep it in mind. Okay, got you covered. Um, well, well, Derek, before we talk about our case, I just want to remind everybody, um, I've already talked about the Arc of Justice Institute, but why don't you remind everybody about what the Arc of Justice Project uh, is and, and how that's going. And I should also remind everybody, if you want to look up Derek or the uh, Arc of Justice Project or Arc of Justice Institute, you can find him at on the Arc, and that's A-R-C uh, dot net. So O-N-T-H-E-A-R-C dot net. Sure. Our, in a nutshell, our primary mission is to foster a greater understanding of the rule of law where economics, rights, and, and governance intersect. And the flagship initiative in that, to fulfill that mission is highlighting the role that lawyers and judges played in the civil rights movement. Most people know of what I refer to as the general, the lieutenants, and the foot soldiers who waged that revolution, but those who gave the advice and counsel, they are very they're not as, as widely known as the, as the others are, but the work that lawyers and judges did during that particular volatile moment of American history was invaluable, outstanding, and quite frankly, not exactly certain if the country would have made the progress that it has enjoyed had it not been for lawyers and justice, judges. So we want to highlight what that work has been. We're doing it in a couple of ways. The Biggest way is we ha- we're in the development of a traveling exhibit that will go across the nation. Quite naturally, the pandemic has, like everything else, put those plans in a bit of a, 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 a suspension. We're not exactly certain how we're going to be able to reintroduce that aspect, uh, but we're, work- we're working on, on figuring, out, figuring that out. But we are able, happily, with the advent of technology to continue to be able to educate people on that work through the podcast. Right. And so where one window closes, another window is remains open. And so we'll stay in that open window and expand from that particular stamp in, in that particular regard. But we are not stopping in getting that information, that education to the general public about what lawyers and judges did at that particular moment and how critical lawyers and the profession of law has been, not just during that period, but from the very inception of the nation itself. Uh, We we talk a lot about the history of the nation, uh, but we very rarely, if at all, tell that story through the lens of what the law has meant to this particular democracy. So uh, I I have personally become even more enthused about the telling the American story through the lens of law yeah. as, a, as a result of getting involved in this project, looking at the role that lawyers and judges made in the civil rights movement. So something else is beginning to open up here. Yeah. Well, I, I really love that too, because, you know, uh, it, the lawyers many times get bad raps, uh, uh, you know, and, and um, sometimes with the butt of jokes, but I mean, Lawyers throughout history have been uh, at the forefront of making change to society. And that's mm-hmm. one reason why I'm proud to be a lawyer uh, in the, the uh, important stories that you're telling on uh, Hidden Legal Figures podcast uh, is another aspect of that. And, and, the, and there really are some just courageous stories on that podcast about people who, um, you know, do things where they're putting their lives on the line, uh, just stand up for what's right. And uh, our 
earlier podcast that we did, we talked a lot about D.L. Hollowell. And, uh, and I know you do uh, uh, at least one show uh, featuring uh, uh, D.L. Hollowell and, um, and, then, um, and then many other just uh, great civil rights leaders and, uh, and lawyers. Yes, yes. They, uh, the, the stories are phenomenal, Steve, Yvonne. It's just, it is absolutely, as you mentioned, the courageous work that they did, the selfless work they conducted, the um, um, amount of times that their lives were in danger that they never really thought about themselves. They were really, they, they had at the core of their being what I like to call the ethic of care and, what, and, and making certain that they were being advocates in the cause of something greater than themselves. And that was at the essence of who they were. And their stories are just absolutely remarkable. They are, they are breathtaking and they need, as I mentioned earlier, they, they, they require us to, to, to share it with, with this generation, the next generation. Um, and it, it, it's just an amazing work, a body of work that they, that they, that they did. Well, um, I, I want to talk about the case that we're we're talking about today. Uh, we this is sort of a part two of of what we started when we talked about the Holmes versus Danner case, which which uh, was a landmark case that uh, that desegregated uh, the University of Georgia. Uh, and this is another Georgia case that was uh, uh, fundamental to desegregation and to uh, and and basically cementing the Civil Rights Act. Uh, of 1964. Uh, the name of the case is Heart of Atlanta Motel versus the United States. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, the Heart of Atlanta Motel was a 216-room establishment uh, that was right in what it says, the Heart of Atlanta, uh, right downtown. It's, I, I looked up the address. It was 255 Cortland Street, uh, right there by Centennial Park. And uh, now I think it's a, it's a Hilton Hotel. That's right. Um, but um, back in 1964, it was uh, promoted as the, I think it was promoted as the best hotel between New York and Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually looked up some pictures of it. And Yvonne, I don't know if this will help our listeners or you, but it kind of looks like, or kind of looked like the Thunderbird Motel down here in Savannah. I thought um, so too. Yeah. But, um, and I noticed that they had a, uh, like a, this is obviously, uh, you know, when they weren't worried about, uh, uh, lawsuits coming out of um, out of pool injuries because they had a thirty foot high uh, platform. I saw there in uh, in some of the pictures. So uh, so they definitely uh, uh, you know uh, had all kinds of amenities. But the one thing that they or more than one thing they they wouldn't do is they wouldn't uh, allow uh, African Americans, blacks, to stay there. Um, and even though the the Civil Rights Act had been passed, uh, there the owner which uh, Oh man, I wrote down his name. Now I'm blanking on his on his name. Uh, Rolleston is that mm -hmm. Morton Morton, Morton Rolleston, who was a lawyer in Atlanta, and uh, owned the hotel. And he was a um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, against um, uh, desegregation, and um, and so he, almost as soon as the Civil Rights Act got passed, he filed a lawsuit uh, in order to. Uh, claimed that his constitutional rights uh, were being violated uh, by the Civil Rights Act. Uh, one thing I, I, I noticed is that I think this lawsuit also included um, the uh, restaurant owned by Lester Maddox, uh, the Pickrick, uh, before it before he became governor of uh, of Georgia. And it, it sounded like this uh, 
what happened, this decision maybe led him to uh, getting into politics and, and running for governor uh, later on. But basically, Lester Maddox was also uh, against desegregation and, and decided to file a lawsuit. Um, and so these got combined uh, into cases that went up to the Supreme Court. And um, and the not only did the the Supreme Court find and hold that uh, that the government had the right to um, to uh, enact the Civil Rights Act and that it applied to these because of the Commerce Clause under Article One, uh, but the challenges I mean so the challenges that they had were one that they thought that it violated the Commerce Clause and two uh, that it violated their Fifth Amendment right. Um, to uh, liberty, you know, not deprivation of liberty and property without due process of the law, or if the property gets uh, deprived, that they at least get just compensation. And then what I thought was uh, Infuri- sort of, infuriating. Yeah, I was I, I was shocked. Uh, they brought a Thirteenth Amendment claim, which which if anybody's forgot is the is the amendment against involuntary servitude against slavery. And they were claiming that the Civil Rights Act was a violation of the 13th Amendment because it was forcing them to uh, accept black people uh, into their place of business. And so it was forcing them into involuntary servitude. And um, and the Supreme Court, I mean, it, it, you know, it wrote a, a long opinion on this, but it, that part of the opinion, I mean, they basically slapped that down pretty quick and said it was, uh, you know, I, I don't even know how to explain that they would they would try and use, you know, the um, anti-slavery amendment to somehow claim that that they are being uh, uh, forced into slavery by by allowing uh, black people to come to their uh, hotel and restaurant. But um, that's just sort of a quick overview of the case. Um, I mean, so Derek, this was just a, a another. Um, uh, groundbreaking uh, case that, that that got all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the, the other thing I, I forgot to mention is that uh, Morton Rolleston actually represented himself uh, throughout the litigation. And then I think Archibald Cox was representing uh, the uh, United States government as the Solicitor General. And he uh, people may remember him later on from uh, Watergate fame and some other um, some other uh, big cases. Um, but um, but yeah, so this this case uh, was groundbreaking, uh, Derek. Um, what else can you tell us about it? Well, you, you've done such an excellent job of laying it out. I'll just say thank you for having me on and uh, <laughs> <laughs> ready to tune in and listen. <laughs> but, but you're correct. I mean, we've got these two cases: uh, Heart of Atlanta versus Motel, Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States. I I think this one is conducted in what I call a rather sophisticated and urbane manner. And then we have Willis versus the Pickwick Restaurant, which I say is a cauldron of cartoonish behavior and violence. But both of them are rooted in the disturbing and disgusting side effects of the nation's history that had committed itself to segregation and discrimination. And it's that history that produced the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So we, we go back and we go, where does where all this come from? Right. There were cases that used phrase, the, 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 the language called the rule of the house. Uh, of course, in 1787, we have the noxious phrase, all of the persons in the United States Constitution. 1866, we have the civil rights cases that interpreted the recently passed uh, 14th Amendment. 
to say that that invalidated the congressional power to deal with discrimination as it applied to states. Then in 1890, we have a case out of Michigan where a particular restaurant divided itself in half. It was the restaurant side and then the saloon side. And black patrons who came in could not sit in the restaurant side. They had to be served from the saloon side, standing, not seated. A gentleman named uh, Ferguson wanted to challenge that, and he was told that he could not be served because it wasn't the rule of the house that blacks not be served from that standpoint. Then we have 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson, and the odious separate but equal principle. 1906, we have another case, Taylor versus Cohn out of Oregon. Uh, black gentleman attempts to purchase theater tickets to go see a particular per, uh, play, a show. And again, he has met with this phrase, rule of the house, that, it, that you are not, we do, we do not have, we cannot serve you because of your color. And so all across the country, the separate but equal and rule of the house customs began to find their way into theaters, into restaurants, public parks, hotels, lodges, um, golf courses, anywhere that there were public accommodations, there was always the separation of races in terms of how they're, how they're served. And so that's when we get to the Congress passing the Civil Rights Act to outlaw discrimination in places of public accommodation. July 2nd, 1964, also the 56th birthday of Thurgood Marshall that same day. At about 1.45 in the afternoon, Congress passes the Civil Rights Act. Five hours later, Lyndon Johnson signs it in a historic signing ceremony at in the East Room at the White House. Two hours and 10 minutes after that 6.45 signing, Morton Rolston files a lawsuit in the United States District Court of the Northern District of Georgia, challenging the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act. And as you point out, Steve, the two major grounds were Fifth Amendment taking, his property was being taken without just compensation, and he challenged the constitutionality of the public accommodations aspect of the, of the law, saying that Congress had exceeded its power uh, the Commerce Clause power in attempting to deal with racial discrimination. And so we have that, we have that particular case happening uh, just on filed on the exact same day after it is signed into law by President Johnson. He sought $11 million in damage. That $11 million is, is going to become quite um, intriguing and interesting as we talk later. So just remember that $11 million figure. $1 million for the deprivation of his property and $10 million for a strange right uh, depriving him of his liberty to refuse service. Um, sometimes I hear when people talk about this right is not specifically expelled in the Constitution, this right cannot be found, cannot be enumerated. And then you look at some of the cases and you go, wow, for, for a group that loves, you know, specifically enumerated rights in, in the Constitution, the liberty to refuse service. I've got to flip through my Constitution to see where I find it and which article that's in. Right. Um, <laughs> but that's the basis of his challenge. Uh, immediately after the act is passed, one local newspaper in Atlanta says, called the Civil Rights Act a giant step in the struggle for freedom, human dignity, and first-class citizenship for all. Leading up to the Civil Rights Act, uh, while it was being debated, 
One member of the Georgia congressional delegation, Charles Welkner, who later went on to be a, a member of the Georgia Supreme Court, was the only member of the Georgia delegation to vote for the Civil Rights Act. Wow. Uh, he's instrumental in inviting Ivan Allen, who's mayor at that time, to provide to provide testimony in favor of it. A group of a civic group comprised of women known as Women for Progress in the late 1960s, early 1960s, began to 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 organize to lead the civic community and more so the business community in embracing the eventuality of and, and enforceability of the Civil Rights Act in that regard. A, one of the strongest people in opposition groups, excuse me, in opposition to it was a group called the Atlanta Restaurant Association. They had come out in opposition of it. But because of the work of the Women for Progress, by the time the Civil Rights Act seemed to be a foregone conclusion, the Atlanta Restaurant Association notified everyone that it had it announced that it had asked its members to serve all comers without regard to race or color as soon as the bill becomes law. One of the members of the Atlanta Restaurant Association was a gentleman named Lester Maddox. And at that particular point, Lester Maddox is defiant. He says that he is not going to he is not going to comply with the law no matter what's what happens, that his restaurant is a whites only restaurant. And so we've got the act passed on July 2nd. That's a Thursday. The very next day, three ministers, George Willis, Woodrow Wilson, and Alfred Dunn. They're also students at the Interdenominational Theological Center. They go over to the Pickrick restaurant to test the case. Now, keep in mind, remember I told you that Mr. Ralston had already filed his lawsuit in the federal court the night before. And now we have the three ministers going over to test the case uh, the day the day of the day after. Well, when Mr. Willis, Mr. Wilson, and Mr. Dunn arrive there, a violent confrontation between the ministers, uh, Lester Maddox, and and white patrons of the establishment ensue. Uh, that next Monday, there's a warrant issued for Lester Maddox by Civil Court Judge Osgood Williams, and a hearing the following day on July 7th. And in that hearing. Uh, the testimony comes out from Mr. Willis that when he pulled into the parking lot, a large crowd of white men with axe handles surrounded his car and that Lester Maddox drew a pistol on him. And as Mr. Willis testified, stuck it in my face. Uh, Matt, one of the things that was interesting is that Mr. Willis said the reason that we were there is because we wanted to get a taste of that southern fried chicken we'd heard so much about. We're preachers and we like chicken. So that's right, why we right. were there. Um, Maddox, Mr. 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 Reverend Willis, uh, Mr. Wilson, and Mr. Dunn are represented by William H. Alexander. Uh, Mr. Alexander had uh, was a Macon native, graduated from Fort Valley State undergraduate, went to Michigan Law School because, of course, at that particular moment, he was not allowed to attend uh, any uh, law school here in Georgia, at the University of Georgia, because of the rules of segregation. He comes back. He practices here in Atlanta. Under in the in the law firm of Hollowell and Ward, Don Hollowell and Horace T. Ward, and he takes this case on behalf of the three ministers. He's representing them, A. H. Lyles and uh, and 
what is I can't, I can't find his name. Yeah, Frank French, excuse me, A.W. Lyles and Frank French represent Mr. Maddox. Mr. Maddox gets on the stand and he testifies that, yes, indeed, he had 36 axe handles and he had them to protect his life, his liberty and his property. In open court, he testified that he would not obey the Civil Rights Act and that his restaurant was for whites only. And Maddox's lawyers somehow riled Judge Osgood Williams. And as we all know it, it, from practicing, whether we practice uh, on a minimal basis or an extensive basis, one of the things that you don't do <laughs> is you don't upset the judge. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you try very hard to make certain that that is that is that does that does not happen. Well, they were questioning the jurisdiction of the court. Uh, the civil court at that time was what was called being a committing court. Uh, I guess in the, the similarity between an, and just an arraignment or or to make certain that enough charges that enough evidence was present to go forward. And so somehow, because they were committing court, uh, Mr. Lyles questioned the jurisdiction of the court. That upset Judge Williams, and he lashed out, and he and he told him, this court is controlled by the law and the law alone. Let's get that straight. This court is controlled by the law, its oath of office, and its conscience. So after that day of testimony, the court issued a nearly a 1,000-word opinion, and he mentioned that because we are a committing court, the act, whether Mr. Maddox was acting reasonable in terms of brandishing a weapon in defense of his property, that is a question for the jury. But he went on to write that it is my feeling that section 26-5107 uh, would be unconstitutional since the Civil Rights Act would strongly indicate that where one a person enters upon premises for the purposes of being fed or lodged, that act itself is not to be considered a wrongful act. And so in that regard, we have our two cases in their first posture. The federal court, the federal uh, case filed by Mr. Rolston, challenging the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act, and the first instance of uh, Willis versus Pickrick in a state tribunal, suggest trying to deal with the issue of Mr. Maddox brandishing a weapon to keep people from being served in his restaurant. The um, I, I, I had not heard that story of exactly what happened. I, I had heard that he had uh, um, when, when they came in, he had uh, called them some names and that uh, he had uh, this is Lester Maddox, that he had these um, since the name of his restaurant was a pick Rick, that he had these pick handles at the front of the uh, at the front of the um, restaurant that he would sell for two dollars a handle or something like that. I mm -hmm. guess people could could take them. But when they came in, he allowed all of his other customers to go and grab a, a, a pick handle exactly. uh, to basically arm themselves. So, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing Dot com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. 
Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Uh, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. So call uh, digital law marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. How did the two cases end up getting uh, basically merged in front of the Supreme Court? Well, once after we have the court hearing in the civil court on it's actually the 9th or the 10th of July. I can't I can't find the actual days, but it's one of those two days. Uh, Constance Baker Motley from the NAACP comes down and she and William Alexander hold a press conference announcing that they're, they are going to file themselves a case in federal court to have the rights of Mr. Willis, Mr. Dunn, uh, Mr. Wilson, and others similarly situated, their rights enforced. It bears bears keeping in mind that Title II of the Civil Rights Act is is officially called injunctive relief, relief against discrimination in places of public accommodation. So in order to test the powers of the court in terms of protecting rights, someone had to go out and actually seek to have their rights to, to exercise those rights. Right. And so when Mr. Maddox now is violating that, there now we go into federal court to have those rights protected through injunctive relief. Well, at the same time, the attorney general at that moment, Robert Kennedy, intervenes in the Willis versus Pickwick case. And at that particular moment, the court sees the commonality of interest between the two cases and effectively consolidates them for the purposes of the hearing that took place on Friday, July 17th and concluded on Monday, July 20th. So that's how the cases became consolidated, basically on the move, on the motion to intervene by the attorney general. Okay. And, you know, and I guess the, the, the first sort of attack they make on the uh, Civil Rights Act was this I- issue of whether or not it was within Congress's power to, um, to regulate them through the interstate to, th- because of whether or not it was interstate commerce. And so the Supreme Court opinion spends quite a bit of time, especially talking about the um, um, uh, Heart of Atlanta Motel, uh, about how many um, uh, 
you know, they do a national advertising campaign. They do a big billboard campaign. Uh, they 75% of their um, uh, people uh, were from out of state uh, that stayed there. And so, it was, uh, you know, you know, I mean, it sort of fell right under interstate commerce. And then I guess there was a question about whether or not the movement of people constituted commerce because the Supreme Court uh, spent some time dealing with that. Uh, issue and and um, cited some case law saying that that, that had been decided um, that that the movement of people is uh, is commerce. I didn't see a whole lot of discussion about the restaurant, except I, I think in in one of the concurring opinions, I saw there was sort of some um, mention about how you know they made barbecue sandwiches and the the meat would come from you know out out of state and you know and how they would buy their stuff from from other places and that that's how they were falling under interstate commerce as well um but i thought that whole sort of uh you know i mean i guess i i guess from the standpoint of the of the businesses they were going to attack this uh statute any way they could and i guess they started with the commerce clause but the supreme court went through that pretty thoroughly and that's the interesting thing about the way the legislation was drafted. These facilities that were are going to be subject to uh, federal court jurisdiction for the for injunctive relief, you were precluded from discrimination if you affected commerce. And of course, that was left up to the courts to determine what is what is it, what does affecting commerce mean? Uh, Congress has, as we know, a plenary power to regulate interstate commerce. And it often passes legislation based upon that power, but also it often does not define with any degree of specificity what things actually affect commerce. Congress says it affects commerce. That becomes the definition that something is affecting commerce because we're Congress and we've now said it does affect commerce. And so that's why, as you point out, Steve, the Supreme Court spent a substantial amount of time relying upon the briefs of the attorneys to show the instances, the many instances in which various aspects of the business do rely upon and touch in interstate commerce and thereby, thereby satisfying the statutory language affecting commerce. The in, the in the hotel aspect, the cleaning contracts that you use as far as laundry is concerned, the, 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 the delivery of, of, of meals that where you, where you, who you contract with, the delivery of food to the, to the location. Um, and the court also relied heavily upon, in terms of precedent, its earlier decisions with respect to labor matters in that particular regard. You have employees that come from all across the country. You're not just hiring people from a local standpoint. You make advertisements across the country. Because you do that, that indicates that you are affecting commerce in that regard. And so that was why the court spent that, that amount of time being very detailed in saying that this does affect commerce because that was what it used to rely upon to say, Yes, now Congress is within its purview, within its power of addressing discrimination in this particular context because this context affects commerce and we as Congress have the plenary power to do so. So we are appropriately and naturally concerned with discrimination in these places that address commerce in, this, in such a broad manner. 
I remember uh, in especially, I just didn't know until I got into law school, you know, I think you read about the factual scenario of a case like this and you think you're about to read an opinion that's about the rights of colored people and the rights of people to be treated equally. And, and um, I said colored people, I meant people of color, all people, (laughs) Um, but that you expect it to be something about that. And then you, st- I, I remember, I just vividly remember being in law school and reading in con law that then it was then decided on these very like unsexy issues for lack of a, of a better word, you know, on interstate commerce on these very technical things that still, I remember reading them and being like, this is the outcome that I wanted, of course, but you you know, I, I remember learning in law school that the opinions, a lot of them were going to be decided on these things that seemed so um, technical or kind of separate from human rights. That is interesting. You mentioned that I, I had the similar reaction when reading those cases in law school. <laughs> you're sitting there and you're going, OK, I think I want to hear you say from a judicial standpoint, it's just ridiculous for you to suggest that you have a business to provide a service and people who can come want to come into your into your business to procure that service you just tell them they can't come in and you fill in the blank with an artificial classification i want to have the court say that's just ridiculous we don't do it but to, to read this what i'm going to refer to as a brilliantly convoluted rationale around commerce, I'm sitting in law school with like like you, Yvonne, I'm going, okay, I think what I would become <laughs> if I were a member of the court is what, what, what I would call the great concurrer. I would write my opinion by saying, while I agree with the holding of the majority today, I write separately to emphasize a point that has been ignored very polite language to, that really means you're right, but you just don't even know why you're right. <laughs> um, but then I go back and you say, oh, well, you know what? The entire issue of slavery, in addition to being a human rights aspect, was also a commerce aspect. And so if there is some timidity to in talking about it strictly on the human rights grounds, then I am satisfied, not encouraged, not delighted, not inspired, not happy, but satisfied that you can at least find the grounds on a commerce standpoint. Um, So I had some of this, I had the exact same thought and reaction that you did, Yvonne. And just a few minutes ago when you said colored person. (laughs) I hate, I'm so cringing over that. (laughs) No, actually, Yvonne, when you said it, that's something I wish that we could get to in the country where you didn't really have to apologize or explain what you meant. I think everybody on the call knows that we're talking about a period when the language of the moment was colored person, colored people. And I think in in terms of your placing yourself in the in the in the moment that the decision was being rendered, you utilize the language of the moment. I well, I was re- I was reading an article about it, and so okay. I just like as soon as I said it, I was like, oh gosh. Yeah, and, and so you know, it, it would be great 
if we got to a point where you said that and did not feel that you need to explain it? And if you said it, when people heard it, they went, well, that was the language of the moment. And that's what she was talking about, the language of the moment. So I, 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 that's a little aside, but I thought of it when well, you, thank you said that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, you could uh, probably see me sweating. And, uh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted, you know, what you were uh, saying, Derek, about uh, you'd be the great concurrent, that, that is basically what Justice uh, William Douglas did here because, you know, he kind of looks at this and says, I know we're dealing with commerce. He said, but why don't we just deal with the 14th Amendment? And right. say this falls under equal protection, mm-hmm. and you know, and that'll be a lot clearer. And you know, and we'll know that everybody has has the right. So he sort of did exactly what you were saying, which was, you know, we we don't even need to talk about the commerce clause. Let's just let's just set out right now that this is about equal protection, mm-hmm. and and it falls under the Fourteenth Amendment. But I I also wanted to say that I I thought it was obviously when when people were putting the Civil Rights Act together, and you know, knowing that there would be lots of challenges to it and it had had to withstand scrutiny to go up to the Supreme Court. Um, they packed the legislative record with uh, you know all kinds of examples on how this affects commerce. And then the Supreme Court cited you know all of these you know uh, the legislative record on how they had, they had packed it full of examples. but it's you know clear that when they when they were writing the legislation, they were planning for just this day, you mm-hmm. know so that the Supreme Court would have you know, uh, ample uh, ammunition to uh, to uphold the uh, uphold the law. Exactly. Um, I was gonna I was gonna talk about I um, you know when we talk about this issue of commerce, I I actually found a short interview of Morton Rolleston afterwards from WSB TV, where they asked him you know because at, at, while the case was going up to the Supreme Court, he was under an injunction where he had to allow. Uh, black people to come into his hotel. And so he mm-hmm. was complying with that. Mm-hmm. And so they asked him, they said, you know, uh, have, you know, how many black people have you had coming in? And he basically said, I, I'm not sure how many, but it's, it's only been a few. And they said, well, how has that affected your business? And he said, well, it hasn't really affected it, but I'm you know, convinced that it will affect the business and it will, you know, and it, and it will affect things. But he had to admit right there that, uh, that he really hadn't had much effect to his business at all by allowing uh, 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 black people into his uh, into his space. And in that same interview, he goes on to say that Southerners are really not going to be happy with this decision. They're going to be totally, they're going to be very upset about it. And, and in a follow-up question, he then responds, he says, but, well, you everybody gets used to everything. So we'll get right. used to it. So you just try to figure out, okay, Mr. Ralston, what, what, what's your actual position here? Right. right. Well, right. related to that, when I when I was reading about the posture of the case and then hearing you talk about the timeline, Derek, I was wondering if you had any, um, you know, background info, info, as you so often do about I mean, he was clearly ready to pounce the second that this was um, that this was passed. He was ready to file his case and, and you know, oppose it. So was that I mean, I know that's not why he opened his hotel, but do you, do you have other info on him? You know, cause what, it was a couple of hours and then he files his case. He filed, he files his lawsuit, uh, approximately seven hours and 10 minutes after they, um, after the, after this passed, there's an earlier decision that came down, um, in early July of 1964. That's involving the Atlanta Marriott hotel corporation 
versus guess who? The Heart of Atlanta Motel Corporation. And remember Steve mentioned that the present location of, of what was the Heart of Atlanta Motel is the Hilton sitting at 255 Cortland Street. Well, right across from that is the rear entrance to guess what? The Marriott. <laughs> the Marriott in late 60, in, in early late 62, early 63 had begun to acquire property from the Atlanta Housing Authority. And they brought suit against Mr. Rolston's against Rolston's Heart of Atlanta Motel. Uh, alleging that he himself was 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 in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Long, that long story short is that there was some business finagling going on in the context of Mr. Ralston's his interest in not trying to be acquired by the Atlanta Marriott Hotel. Remember, remember that eleven million dollar figure I told you mm -hmm. that was going to come up later. Um, that was an offer that had been made to Mr. Ralston. Mr. Ralston was not satisfied with that particular offer. And so, but he used that offer to base his, his claim of damages in Heart of Atlanta Motel versus the United States. Ironically, some nine years later, after the Supreme Court had validated Congress's power in the case in 1973, Mr. Ralston sells his property to what becomes the Hilton a year later. Yvonne, could you guess exactly how much he <laughs> sold the property for? Stop. $11.1 million. <laughs> and so it sort of kind of explains, as I mentioned earlier, Mr. Ralston is conducting his case in a rather, in a rather sophisticated, urbane manner because he's also functioning in, in, in the context of the, of the business aspect. Does he want to be in the business of, of, have, of having a, a concern that is being forced to deal with Black customers? I'm going to say no. Does he see that these things, that the, that the, the, the pendulum is swinging and things are going to change? I'm going to say yes. And how do, how do I profit from this particular standpoint? And so his background is has has that connotation to it uh, guided a little bit about what the business interest was more so than the arch vehement stance against segregation against the, uh, the integration like his, his his like lester maddox actually was wow so yeah, yeah. I, I knew you'd have I knew you'd have some good background <laughs> info. Well, you just little things like that when you when you see them when you're doing the research and you you, you ask the question, okay, where did eleven million dollars come from? Right. How do, you, how do yeah. you get that? How is your how are you saying you're being deprived of your property interest and you tap and that's a and that's a million dollars, but my right to refuse service is worth ten. You know, where, how do you get eleven million dollars? And then of course when you see the sale link, you go. That's awfully curious that they're both in the same exact number. And then when you, I guess when you find that case that comes before it, you go, oh, and there's $11 million off of it. And so it, it just becomes so intriguing, the through lines, when, when you're doing this kind of research. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when 
what happens. When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. I guess we should talk about the the other two challenges that he had or that they had, which was the Fifth Amendment and the Thirteenth Amendment. Uh, the the Fifth Amendment was the uh, his right against the depra- deprivation of liberty or property without due process of law, and essentially he was saying that it it was his right to refuse service, and by not allowing him to refuse service to somebody, he was being deprived of his liberty or property, and and either one uh, that should be enjoined or two. Uh, he should get just compensation, which I guess is where that uh, that $10 million mm-hmm. figure came from. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and the Supreme Court does, you know, go through that and, and discusses it in, in what I would call, you know, a more thoughtful manner before deciding, you know, you're allowed to have, uh, um, you know, reasonable uh, regulation and you're not really being deprived of anything. Um, but what... You know, and then we can talk about why he would bring up the 13th Amendment, because, I mean, just from a a legal strategy standpoint, let's say, you never want to compromise your integrity or your uh, your credibility. And uh, to me, when I read that he included the 13th Amendment argument in there, I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, whatever legitimate basis you thought you had for arguing just went out the window uh, because you just just try to claim that you're being you know uh, the same as as be, being treated the same as a slave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm with you when you read through it. You just you look at it and you go, I'm not exactly certain what was on your mind when you were thinking this through. As as you mentioned, Steve, from a legal strategy. But of course, we do remember what Mr. Lincoln said. 
the person who the lawyer who, who represents himself has an idiot <laughs> for a lawyer and a fool right. for a client. So <laughs> you're not really thinking through in terms of the actual legal strategy in, in, in regards to how does how 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 is this going to be handled in terms of research, precedential value. Um, what cases am I going to rely upon? What have been previous holdings of this court that would actually justify me making this particular claim at this moment? You're you're not really thinking about those things. You're you're actually going. You're actually thinking in the context of, as as he phrases it. You know, I I have a right to say who I want to come in this business or not to refuse service in that particular regard, and I have made a determination that I wish to refuse an entire group of people based upon the color of their skin. That is my right to do that. I go into business for that. And how dare a Congress, how dare some centralized power, as he says in his, in his, his statement when the, when the Supreme Court uh, upholds the case, that we, this, is a, this is a centralized power just trampling upon my right to refuse service. I actually, in his mind, he believes he actually does have that particular right. And so I don't think there's any much of a legal strategy there. Uh, it, it, it's just more personal than anything else. And as you mentioned, the court goes through dealing with it in a deliberate manner, making the distinction between reasonable regulations. Okay, if a person comes in and is behaving erratically, seems to be upsetting the upsetting other customers, well, then that may be a basis for you with withholding service and things of that particular nature, as an example. But just the arbitrary um, refusal to serve people based upon the artificial classification of race, that you don't have that as a liberty interest. That is not, that is just antithetical to the Constitution. I, I would go so far as that it's not unconstitutional, it's just a constitutional. We don't right. we don't yeah. we don't even <laughs> acknowledge that. We don't know what that means. Right. So that's an, those are interesting aspects. And as you mentioned, to put in the 13th Amendment. Uh, a, a violation of the 13th Amendment, you just you look at that and you go, at what point can you find history supporting the claim of you having been involved in any kind of servitude, voluntary or involuntary, at any right. particular point? The entire amendment is to eradicate a condition that was applied to a particular group of, a group of people, a group of people that we later refer to as a suspect class. At what point have you been a member of a suspect class right. where you have been denied, where you have been rendered into a particular condition? So now to put this in front of us, we go, we'll address it because it's here. Uh, we'll have to be equally artful in dismissing it as you were in raising it. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, I almost expected to see, um, you know, similar to when, you know, these facts get presented and then the NAACP gets involved to, um, you know, use these cal these cases to get a decision on this issue. You'd almost expect, um, you know, I don't know, the, the evil nemesis of NAACP to sort of get involved um, in cleaning up his side of the case or, or in to the extent there were better arguments in, in backing those or helping represent him. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, you, like you, 
you taught us in, in the case we talked about last time you were on about kind of what's going on behind the scenes. And you learn in con law about that these cases that I think when you hear growing up in school, you think are cases that just happen. And then you find out later, you know, how these, uh, how somebody makes these cases happen or, or tries to get the right facts and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I almost expected that if some guy was representing himself and trying to make a 13th Amendment argument that that other folks, business people or whatever that were in the area who who were similarly minded to him would sort of, I don't know, jump in and either stop him from making that argument or insist on paying for a lawyer for him or something. <laughs> and the, the background there, you've got with the NAACP getting involved and, and, and the background of Atlanta, what's happening at that point, you've got a number of groups who are making certain statements and making certain claims and pushing towards things to be different. You've got the Coalition for the Advancement of Human Rights, a student-led group in Atlanta who had been part, who had been very, uh, very, uh, very, had a significant part in the sit-ins in Rich's department stores that began in the, in the 1960s and 1961 because they were an outgrowth of what the sit-ins were that were taking place in Greensboro, North Carolina, and all across the South from that particular standpoint. You've got the group I mentioned earlier, the Women for Progress. You actually have the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee actually conducting, planning to conduct test cases once the Civil Rights Act was signed into law all across the Deep South, Laurel, Mississippi, Selma, Montgomery, Selma, um, Montgomery St. Augustine, Florida, just earlier in 1964, even before the Civil Rights Act had been passed, uh, Lev's Restaurant had been the site of a, a protest. Lev's Restaurant is now, it sits right across from what is now the Adderhole um, Center at Georgia State, Rialto, that restaurant right, right there. A, cr- a couple of crystal franchises had been the site of of some test cases. And so you've got that, you've got that going on. And in the background, you've got members of the political and the business community under the heading of Atlanta's famous motto, the city too busy to hate. Atlanta is always making certain. Uh, we can critique it, we can call it right, we can call it wrong, but nonetheless, it is. Atlanta is always making certain that it does not go the way of other states, its surrounding neighbors. If violence is erupting in other states, if impediments are happening, uh, impediments to business are prevalent in other states, Atlanta is making certain from a negotiated standpoint, it will steer itself as best as best as it can and as much as it can clear from those obstacles. And so you've got one group, you've got groups do it, making advances and test cases, like I mentioned, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the NAACP is coming in handling a the lead portion of a test case. You've got the Coalition for the Advancement of Human Rights. And then you have Mr. Morton Ralston by himself. So I think somewhere along the line, Yvonne, somebody probably goes, you know what? Just leave him alone to make the outrageous statement about right. the 13th Amendment. That will clearly demonstrate on its own. It must far better than we ever could, the insanity of the Mm -hmm. opposition. And so whatever we come up with in terms of our reasoned, negotiated 
compromise, not compromise is a bad word, our negotiated entrance into desegregation, it is always going to be viewed as more sane, as more sustainable, as more possible, as more realizable, as more achievable, because it will always stand in stark contrast and opposition to a claim that a person's 13th Amendment rights are being invalidated. <laughs> so I think sometimes in, in those instances, with all of those various, those, those, those different forces and organizations who are have their own, they're in their own lane advancing toward a particular outcome, the extreme statements sometimes are just left best alone because they make the case for us better than we ever could ourselves. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. You know, I was thinking about this case. So, you know, Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States. This this case basically established the Civil Rights Act as being law and led to uh, other cases and, and basically desegregation throughout the South. So it was, you know, a great victory and and two steps forward in one respect. But then it, you almost feel like maybe one step back because after this, then Lester Maddox, you know, basically decides to run for governor and his symbol is the uh, is the pick handle. And that's what he carried around with him when he was campaigning. And he uh, and, you know, in, in uh, you know, is not a, a great time in Georgia history. He wins election and he becomes uh, governor of Georgia. And he was uh, clearly a, a racist and a, a very strong segregationist. And um and sort of, sort of, sort of uh, steps, uh, you know, brings the state, you know, back a little bit. I mean, and he, he only basically got notoriety, from what I can tell, from, you know, what happened here in this case. Is that? That is the basis of his notoriety. If you 
from the federal court case that happened in July when they get, when they issued the injunction saying you cannot refuse service to Negro customers, they gave they gave Mr. Ralston and they gave Mr. Maddox eleven excuse, until August 11 to prepare the record for the appeal. It was going to be on August 11, 20 days after the issuance of the July 22nd ruling that the injunction was going to go in force. Lester Maddox, choose, Lester Maddox chooses August 11 to, to engage in a second violent confrontation with groups of ministers who show up at the restaurant to, to again be served. He uses the black, his black, some of his uh, black employees to block the entrance mm-hmm. of, of the ministers attempting to, to gain entrance. Again, the patrons there. They go and get the pick at the, the, the pick handles that you that you mentioned, Steve. Early, he did. He would sell them. He called them pick rick drumsticks. They were for sale, and they, he he said he used them just for the sole purpose to warn off demonstrators. He sold carbonated beverages called cans of carbonated beverage called gold water in support of Barry Goldwater, who mm. at that time was running for president. In and one of his major planks was the opposition to the Civil Rights Act. Mr. Maddox had copies of the Constitution in a casket that he would that he would sell to customers from that particular standpoint. So Judge Frank Johnson is going to is issuing a contempt citation for Mr. Maddox at that particular moment, threatening it to put him in jail. What does Mr. Maddox do? He closes the restaurant. A couple of months, uh, not, not even a month later, he reopens the, the restaurant, call it the Lester Maddox Cafeteria. And he engages then in a third incident of violently confronting individuals, four ministers who try, who are trying to get gain gain entrance into the restaurant, saying that they'll kill me before they force me to integrate my place. Mr. Maddox is a staunch segregationist. He is an arch defender of segregation. And he unfortunately at that moment, and as we are living through the resurgence of that sentiment, that attitude. He unfortunately is not the only holder of that belief. He is able to take that sentiment and create for himself, as you mentioned, Steve, a political personality. And he is able to take that political personality and communicate that to to groups of people across the state who themselves are who are receptive to that particular conversation. After all, this is this is just 10 years removed from the time period when the General Assembly of Georgia says it is going to close its flagship institution, the University of Georgia, right. as it in, in to prevent having to comply with the court order, the uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision. This is, after all, the same state where, as I mentioned earlier, all but one of its congressional de- delegation is against the Civil Rights Act. This is a state where many of its political leaders are signing what they're calling the Southern Manifesto in opposition to the Civil Rights Act from this standpoint. This is the same state that has perpetuated uh, voting and electoral irregularity by maintaining the, the county unit system. This is the same state that a gubernatorial election in the late 1940s 
once uh, Eugene Talmadge had actually passed his son, his excuse, excuse me, when Herman Talmadge, yes, Eugene Talmadge had passed, his son Herman Talmadge actually gets elected with uh, with what is said to be uh, the votes of deceased individuals from a write-in standpoint. So. Mr. Maddox is not an albatross. He's certainly not speaking in a vacuum. He is communicating a sentiment to a group of people who actually hold that sentiment and are doing everything that they can in their power to desperately maintain the way of life at, as it was at that particular moment. And so he runs, the, he finds that personality. He uses that political personality. And you're right. He actually becomes governor of the state of Georgia, serving, serving one term, but nonetheless, having found some kind of appeal after having demonstrated what many think was reprehensible behavior, others think were, was, was respectable behavior. And, so, and, he, and he prevails and becomes, becomes governor. Isn't isn't like civil rights, civil rights, like I just feel like you read civil rights history or the history of these cases. And then like for every like, yes moment you get, then it's just like another like just punch in the stomach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It it brings to mind the Newtonian principle um, for every action. There is an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah. It is to be known, it is to be understood, and it is to be incorporated in whatever your strategic and tactical plans are, whatever your goals and objectives are. It, it should be appreciated that when you do this, there will be an equal, an equal and opposite that without recognizing that, without, without recognizing that, without having that, un, that particular understanding, you could you could do that kind of work and become frustrated. You can you can engage in that kind of work, um, respond to that call, and feel let down, if, if you will. But knowing that the likelihood, the reality, that when a step forward is taken, there will be something that will cause a the appearance that steps backward are also being experienced. Right. I like I like to I like to think of it differently. It is it is it is not so much that the pendulum is swinging backwards or that the clock is being turned turned backwards. It is just the simple steps of the dance. The dance when I take this step to take my step to the left, you are going to take your step to the right. And my goal is to in, in as you take your step to the right to ensure that the space on the left is still there for me to take my step. Uh, I, I, I like to, to think of it in that particular context when the, at, at the risk of making using the left-right analogy, I've already done it, so I can't apologize for it now, <laughs> but to make certain that the space is still there for me to continue the dance. If, yeah. I, if, if my space becomes a little more circumscribed, if my space becomes a little bit more constricted, then there becomes that problem. But as long as I'm able to move in that particular space, then, then there is a certain comfort, comfort level because when you move to the right, great, that, that, that is expected. I understand you're going to do that. And now, it is, now it's my turn in this particular dance. And so that's my two cents on that, on that matter. I, I like that. I, I like that. I like that a lot. I mean, it's, it's a good way to, when, especially when you're in, in such a, a long battle like the civil rights movement where it's it's not going to happen overnight um 
and you know there's going to be setbacks, it's a, it's a great way of looking at it and to keep from losing hope, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and know that, that, you know, there's going to be setbacks, but that doesn't mean, you know, you can't still move forward. I, I listened to Mr. Ralston's, as you, as, you, as you mentioned, Steve, in that press clipping. I listened to Mr. Ralston use words that this, the decision opened a frightful door to the unlimited power of a centralized government and makes possible a socialized state. I look at that and I go, now this is a statement of a gentleman using the phrase socialized in 1964. Yeah. And where have we heard that before? (laughs) That seems to to be the refrain that is being being used at this particular moment. So when I I talk with people and I I mention the the significance and the importance of studying history, well, your so-called opposition never changes its tactics. It never changes its methods. So back to my dance analogy, it should be predictable that the phrase socialism is going to come, is going to be the response to what you do. So you should have you should have at the ready a response to the statement of socialism. My outrage, my my I become upset when I hear that there is no response to that. As if someone is offering the phrase, this is socialism for the very first time in our history. No, it is not. For a gentleman like Mr. Ralston to say you are violating my 13th Amendment right, a few weeks, a few days ago, when I read that the CEO of a major corporation, Hobby Lobby, Mm. says that it is that not having slavery, not 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 having the ability to have slaves interferes with his First Amendment free religious rights. And you look at it and you go, well, that is an outgrowth of a statement by Morrison Ralston. Mm-hmm. This is a predictable statement. Mm-hmm. And so when you see it, you go, then the quite the natural question becomes, the reflexive question becomes, people will go, oh, you must be talking about Black people to be slaves. That's reflexive. But the natural question becomes, this is an individual who doesn't respect his present workers. Right. right. If the present workers are trying to go in advance of this company and talk in terms of achieving better wages, and let's assume that each and every last one of his workers are people who are born as what we call white. Every one of them go to work with the company Hobby Lobby every day. They give labor to the company. They miss birthdays. They... But they, they miss certain things at school because they're giving their labor to the company and they decide they want to get a raise so that they can they can increase their economic outlook. Their company, their CEO, their company doesn't value them. Mm-hmm. He said, if it were up to me, I wouldn't pay you anything. I just like to have your slaves because that's my religious right. Yeah. And so that is a very strained interpretation of what what is meant by individual liberty right it is a dangerous interpretation because there might be someone someone somewhere on a federal bench on a state court bench someone like a morton ralston who might be able to convince someone that included in the concept of individual liberty is a right to not pay your workers because basically, that's we look at it. If we take the reflexive 
outrage of the phrase slavery, uh, we, we set it aside for a moment and replace it with uncompensated labor. You're just completely disrespectful to your present cadre of employees. And that cannot be, that cannot be the, that cannot show a respect, a respect for capitalism. That sounds a little what, Yvonne? Socialist, doesn't it? Just, right, it turns yeah. around, you turn around <laughs> and go, you're not practicing the capitalism you love. Right. Your slavery is socialism. What are you doing? <laughs> so that, that, that again is what upsets me a little bit. You've got to know that the, the argument's coming because right. it's been sitting there in our history so long. And so when you don't have a response to it, it bothers me. When you're outraged by it, I understand that. But no response bothers me because the easy response that we've just gone through is if you disrespect your workers, that's not capitalism. That, that, is, fun, that, is, that is fundamentally anathema to what we are as a nation. That, sir, is socialism. Yeah. Oh. Well, um, I, I, this has been just a great talk, Derek. I, I wanted to point out one uh, um, uh, interesting side note that I that I saw, and, and I think it's a, a note of maybe uh, historic karma. But I read that uh, Morton Ralston uh, later on he had a, a very beautiful, I guess, nice house on on Paces Ferry in Atlanta. He ended up losing that house, which was then bought it, not only the house but the land uh, by Tyler Perry. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tyler Perry uh, had to, uh, I think, bulldoze that house in order to make room for what, for what he was building. And Morton Ralston, even though he had no right to the property, kept showing up, they said, and, and uh, trying to stop him, even though he, there's nothing he could do. And Tyler Perry was kind of like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. This guy just, you know, keeps showing up on my on my property. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I thought that was uh, an interesting side note to uh, to to uh, what happened to Mr. Ralston. And, and I've been I've been thinking about, you know, maybe one day I think I just want to get in the car and drive by that property. Just go right. by and just take a look at it just to see, OK, what does what did Mr. Perry do on this land at this particular moment? From, right. That was the that that came up the result of a, what was it, nearly a two decade long legal battle that he had to deal with. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> because, as you say, Mr. Ralston just kept showing up. Right. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah, it's just sort of this crazy, this crazy twist on this whole story. Well, um, Derek, this has been just a great uh, conversation. And I want to thank you for for coming on the show again. And I want to remind everybody, we've been talking with Derek Alexander Pope uh, of the uh, Arc of Justice Institute. Uh, And if you want to look up uh, the Arc of Justice Institute, the Arc of Justice Project, uh, or hear about the Hidden Legal Figures podcast, you can uh, look up Derek at onthearc.net. That's O-N-T-H-E-A-R-C.net. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. And Yvonne, don't forget, we're going to be calling you. We're definitely going to be calling you. I, I can't cannot, wait. I can't wait to hear Yvonne's uh, voices. I hope you start practicing, Yvonne. I'm studying up on accents, like, now. <laughs> very, very good. Very good. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Derek. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com.
We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast dot com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great trials podcast dot com Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>